Hello and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Words of Welcome, the teaching ministry of Welcome Baptist Church, Heathfield. We are carrying on our uh, series looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, we're uh, jumping around through uh, all of the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the, the books which specifically tell the story of Jesus' life. Uh, and we're jumping around, kind of doing a bit of a chronological uh, look through Jesus' life. So, so far, we've looked at Jesus as a teenager, uh, him being baptised by John the Baptist. Last week, we um, heard from Andy about Jesus in the wilderness and being tempted uh, by the devil. And then this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. And this is where John speaks of Jesus starting his ministry. It's quite a familiar story to us, Jesus changing water into wine. And I've not done any empirical research on this, but my guess is if you just asked a person on the street a miracle that Jesus did, I reckon turning water into wine would be one of the top ones, maybe alongside walking on water. I think they're they're very commonly known. If you ever watch the TV series Taskmaster, they're tasked with doing a miracle and lots of them like, oh, miracle, water into wine. I've seen it as a magic trick. I've seen it where magicians turn water into wine. I've heard it as a joke. You'd want Jesus as your caterer because as long as you've got water, you'll always have wine. And as miracles go, it, it strikes me as a kind of a light one. I don't know if you know what I mean. Like, compared to raising someone from the dead, we see the importance of that. Whereas turning water into wine, it kind of doesn't really have the same gravitas to it, does it? It doesn't feel as important as raising someone from the dead, giving sight to the blind, healing the sick. And in terms of our lives, we can look at some of those other miracles that Jesus does and think, well, yeah, if I'm unwell, I know I can go to him. I can pray and ask for healing. Whereas if on a Friday evening I don't have a bottle of wine, I've never thought, oh, I'll just pray and, you know, see what happens. It's normally an Andy who's doing the praying on that occasion and generally results in a text message to me asking to pick up wine on my way home. But as unusual, maybe light as this miracle seems, John, the very last line that he writes in his book about Jesus' life, he says, Jesus did so many things, there just isn't enough space to write it all down. So if there's so much that John had to be selective of what he wrote, he clearly saw this as being a really important story. He clearly saw this as one of Jesus' miracles, as one that needed to be recorded to be told. And I think what we see in verse 11 and what John talks about is he talks about signs. He doesn't really talk about miracles or acts of power, which some of the other uh, gospel writers do when they're describing the things that Jesus does. John says... What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. A sign is something which points to something more. It points towards something bigger going on. None of Jesus' miracles and none of his teaching is in itself the whole thing. But actually it points to the bigger picture of what Jesus' mission was on the earth. 
And so as John tells this story and as he goes on through his gospel, his recounting of Jesus's life, it's pointing towards the big picture of what Jesus came to do. And as we read through this and as we go through uh, this passage today, we're hopefully going to be able to pick up on some of those signs of what John was pointing towards and why this story was actually a really important one in terms of the start of Jesus' ministry. So we'll start off with the fact that it's a wedding. A wedding is a time of celebration and a time of people coming together. As the Spice Girls sang about, when two become one. You have two separate families that come and join together and they join in promises, in covenant with each other. We had a wedding here just a few weeks ago of Jack and Amy. And when they got married, it wasn't just Jack and Amy and maybe Andy doing the marrying. The whole room was packed with people because it was a time of celebration where community came together to celebrate this joining together. And so we can think sort of big picture of what Jesus did in his ministry of bringing together, of a time of celebration, of time of people being welcomed in and a time of covenant, of promises being made. But the idea of wedding actually goes beyond that in the Jewish culture as well and in what they would have understood. And maybe when John wrote this, he had, his mind went back to some Old Testament passages. So one of the key ones, I think, is um, in Isaiah 61. So Isaiah is talking about the future king. So Israel has been destroyed by their enemies, but God has promised that he will one day bring the king back, that he will bring back one who will restore Israel and do amazing things. So this is who um, Isaiah is talking about. And it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And it goes on to talk about how God's chosen one will bring healing, will bring restoration. And it goes on to verse 10, where it says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So this notion of God's chosen one is linked here with this notion of getting married, of a wedding day. And there are other... Um, passages, and we'll, we'll kind of look a little bit at some of the others, where, where there is this link between God's chosen one and his restoration of his people, linked with the notion of banquet and celebration. Jesus himself talks about weddings and links we weddings with his kingdom that has come. So in Matthew 22, it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he goes on to tell a parable about how this uh, wedding banquet was, was prepared. People were invited, but they didn't turn up. They rejected the king's invitation. And so he go, the servants are sent to the street to get the lowest of the low, welcomes them in, and how they're clothed in robes to make them worthy of this amazing banquet that has been put before them. And that's what Jesus compares to the kingdom of heaven. And then again, in Mark chapter 2, talking, uh, people come and ask him about why his disciples don't fast. And there he compares himself to the bridegroom. How can people fast when there's a time of celebration happening? People act differently when, when there is a groom in their presence. 
I got a taxi from Heathfield to Hearst Green for my wedding and I was all dressed up. And after a few minutes, the taxi driver said, oh, you're, you're looking very smart, you know, what are you going to? And I said, oh, I'm getting married. He was like, what? You're getting married. I'm taking you to your wedding. I'm taking you to your wedding now. But he changed how he was towards me because all of a sudden, I wasn't just some dressed up chap. I was there, I was there to get married. And so Jesus uses this notion of weddings and of him being the groom when, uh, to help us to think about the idea of his kingdom. So already we have some signs of what John is pointing towards in who Jesus is. So we start the story. Jesus has been invited along with his mother and his disciples. If anyone here has got married, you'll know the joy of putting uh, together a wedding guest list. The people who you want to invite, the people you feel like you have to invite, the people you invite hoping that they won't turn up. (laughs) It was uh, a fun time for us doing that. But the culture in which Jesus was going to the wedding was different to the one that we have in this country, but actually similar to some of those around the world. Uh, Anandi, who read, she's my wife, uh, and her mother is Sri Lankan. In Sri Lankan culture, everyone is invited. Your, you know, your cousin's best mate's dog walker will come along. If, if, if there's a vague connection there, everyone will be invited in. And so there's this extensive guest list. Jesus doesn't have a plus one, he has a plus 12, because him and the disciples are all invited there. But with an extensive guest list like this also comes a catering nightmare. Because in this culture, hospitality would be so important. And so if you're there and you run out of wine, there's a big problem. It will bring shame on the event, and on the family, and would probably uh, be a a negative sign in terms of what the marriage is going to be like if you can't even start off on the right foot. We don't really know who it was who was being married. But there are maybe a couple of hints that, as I've read around uh, this passage, that that might be helpful. So one of of the ideas is maybe that um, this was relatives of Mary. The fact that she is aware of the problem that the wine has has run out means that she was kind of in the inner circle and she was really concerned with the reputation of the bride and the groom getting married. That she didn't want this, uh, this occasion to be a bust because they'd run out of wine. Another idea which might be helpful as well is the fact that because they had these stone jars for ceremonial washing, maybe it was a priestly family who was, who was getting married or people within um, the, the priestly clan, which was Levites. Thank you. Just, just testing, just testing. I knew. Um, but whoever it was, It's clearly a problem, the fact that they've run out of wine. And Mary goes to Jesus and she says, there's no more wine. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? We can read too much into this woman. We read it in our culture as woman with an eye roll. That's not what's going on. Jesus later refers to his mother as woman again when he's dying on the cross. I don't think in that situation he's going, woman, It's a cultural thing and it's something that we maybe just feels a bit jarring in the way that we would kind of 
speak about our mothers, possibly. Um, <laughs> I wonder what Mary's expectation was here. I think as a sort of casual understanding and a casual reading of this, um, of this story, I'd always just sort of assumed that it was that Mary was expecting Jesus to do a miracle. But this is the first sign. It's not a case that, you know, when they were at home together, Mary would say, can you prepare the dinner? And Jesus would click his fingers and, hey, food, there we go. Like this wasn't something that Jesus was always doing to kind of show off or anything like that. This is the first time that this has happened. But still, she trusts in her son. Whether it's just that she knows he's a compassionate man and he also won't want to see shame come on uh, this occasion, possibly. But she trusts that the, the event, the party, the wedding is in safe hands if she entrusts it to him. And so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And he sees that there are six big stone vessels hold for, uh, there for holding ceremonial water for cleansing. I love the, the servants in this story. They're such nothingy characters. They're not given names. They were unimportant in terms of the event going on. They were the servants. But in their obedience to Jesus, amazing things happen. They are not amazing, but because they follow, because they trust, because they do whatever he tells you to do, incredible things happen. And I think it's really easy for all of us to look at other people and look at other Christians and compare and think, oh, I could never be like them. I could never do amazing things that they do. True, I can't. I'm not amazing. But it's when we trust in God, when we follow Jesus and when we obey him, when we do what he tells us to, we can take part in things which are amazing and so much bigger, so much greater than anything that we can do or we can achieve on our own. It strikes me in verse 7, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the, the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. They didn't do a half hearted um, filling of the jars. They didn't think, well, what are we doing this for? Three quarters, that's fine. They fill it to the brim, to the very top. They don't know what's going on. Jesus hasn't sat them down and said, okay, what I'm going to do here, guys, is I'm going to transfer this water into wine. So they're thinking, wow, yeah, let's fill it up. They have no idea what's going on, but they've been told, do what he tells you to. That's all they need to hear, and they obey. I wonder what my life would be like if I had that sort of level of obedience. If I heard what he told me to do, and I just got on and did it, rather than thinking, but I don't understand. What if it goes wrong? What if I'm embarrassed? Their obedience, I think, is just so inspiring. They're such nothingy characters, but through them, amazing things happen. And amazing things happen. Water is transformed into wine. 
I'd never really grasped the quantity of wine as well. It was from doing some basic maths, I calculated about 900 bottles of wine. Jesus created an off license. <laughs> like, this is big. This isn't just a, oh, bring your own bottle. This isn't, oh, you know, oh, this is enough for me. Jesus caters for the wedding with abundance of wine. Now, again, this isn't just incidental. This isn't um, Jesus showing off. This isn't uh, John kind of writing just a bit of insignificant detail. This is John signposting. Because if we go again back to the Old Testament, this idea and this expectation that people had that one day God was going to send a chosen one. We use the word Messiah or in the New Testament, Christ. God's anointed one who was going to restore his people, to bring people back to God. They had this great expectation. And when this expectation was written about in the Old Testament, it was often accompanied with a visual image of abundance and abundance of wine. So these are just a few examples where it talks about uh, hills and mountains flowing with wine. That there would be a sense of abundance when God's chosen one was here. So this isn't an incidental thing, the fact that there's so much wine. This is the return of the king. Jesus, in this first miracle, the first sign that he's doing, commencing his mission on earth, he's making a bold stand and a bold statement saying, the person you have heard about, the one you have been waiting for for years while you've lived under, under oppression, I am that one. I have come to restore Israel. I've come to restore the world back to the living God. This isn't a throwaway miracle. This isn't a lighthearted, oh, this is, doesn't really matter. This is Jesus beginning his ministry in the way that it's going to go on, that he brings life and transformation. He is going to change what was old into something new. It struck me as you were uh, sharing with us about John 3.16. That story comes as Jesus talking to Nicodemus, saying, if you want to know God, you need to be born again, old to new. The next story in this passage is Jesus clearing the temple out, because the old has to change to something new. Jesus is the one who is bringing in something new. And when we... Um, when we look at the idea of these stone water jars used for cleansing, if you read through um, especially the, the books of the law, you read a lot about the importance of washing, of cleanliness that was part of the law. Jesus has taken that and he's turned it into something completely new. Can I have the next slide, please? All of us are invited in. This isn't something where it's just for some. This isn't something where there has to be a level of achievement, like the achievement of the law, to be welcomed in. The old ceremony, which was good, which was given by God, but had been distorted by people, Jesus was transforming it into something new where everyone could be invited. No longer is that expectation of you have to live to the law there. 
because none of us could live at that level. But Jesus comes in with his ministry with something new, with a new promise, a new covenant saying, but I can live at that. And I welcome you in. I welcome you to join in this time of celebration. And I think this comes with real challenges for us. I know personally, I think the law is easier because I know where I'm meant to hit. I know I can never get there, but it almost feels like I can try and earn something. But actually, Jesus' way is better because he says you don't need to earn it anymore. I give it to you as a gift. But it's still easy to slip into old ways. It's still easy to to go back to maybe an old way of life. And it's something that all of us, I think, have to continually do, is to come back to Jesus and to look for that transformation. Because it's there, and it's there in abundance. The um, master of ceremonies at the wedding drinks the wine and says, this is better than any wine we've had so far. Jesus transforms what is old into something new, and that is there as an offer for us, and something that is there the first day we turn to Jesus, and it is continually there through our journey, and it's one that I think we have to continually come back to. The other thing that strikes me as being important in this is, as I've said about Jesus was pointing forward, ultimately, to his death and resurrection of bringing all people back to him, giving away for all of us to, to come to God. Jesus is a signpost to that. Our lives are also a signpost. Whether we know it, whether we realize it or not, anytime I cut in line, I'm signposting to the fact that I think my life and my time is more valuable than everyone else's. Anytime I'm selfish, again, I point to myself. If I spend all of my time supporting my football team or, you know, on my car or whatever it is, I point to my priority. I signpost my life in terms of what is important. But we also have the opportunity to signpost back to Jesus. Jesus says in verse, or John writes in verse 11, uh, what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now, when we live in a way which brings uh, unity, which brings restoration because of who we know Jesus to be, we're not bringing glory to ourselves, but we have the opportunity to point to signpost towards he, who Jesus is. That's why we're doing things like Alpha, because we believe that there is an opportunity and a need for transformation of old being made new. And so I think it's a challenge for all of us when we're at home, when we're with friends, family, colleagues. What are we signposting towards? How are we living that is pointing towards Jesus? We don't have to be amazing but we have the opportunity to participate in a God who is amazing if we're willing to be obedient to him. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for, for this story that at face value can maybe uh, seem unimportant, but we thank you for the declaration that Jesus was making and a declaration that we know to be true as he lived his life on that he is your chosen one, your anointed, the one who came to restore, to heal. Lord, help us to be 
open to that transformation in our own lives. Father, for the places that we cling on to the old, help us to be open to your new and your better that you have in store for us. Lord, in the places where we find it hard to be obedient, help us just to do what you tell us to do. And Father, I pray that you'll help our lives to be a signpost back towards you. Help us to point people in your direction so others can be welcomed into the banquet, to the party, to the abundance that you have in store and that you offer to each and every one of us, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to Words of Welcome. For new episodes and more, please visit welcomebaptistchurch.uk.